tonight. Doing good? You got your Bibles with you? Open up to the book of Exodus, chapter 22. We'll finish up uh, chapter 22 and 23 tonight. At least that's our goal. <clears throat> As we take a look at, uh, at Exodus, especially in the sections that we're in right now, uh, we're in the judicial law for uh, the nation of Israel. And one of the things we want to recognize in this one of the things we need to, to understand as we look at the law, it's, it's real similar to our own relationships at home. I mean, the, the reality is the Bible tells if we love our children, we'll discipline them promptly. The children always will excel where they have boundaries, where they understand the boundaries, where they know what's okay and what's not okay. And loving parents will lay those things out. They'll say, hey, this is the deal. This is... The law of the house. Well, in essence, that's what God is doing for his people. He's laying out, he's given the Ten Commandments, the law of God. He spoke that from the pulpit, if you will, of Mount Sinai, from the mountain in the hearing of the people. Now, the people said, we don't want it, we can't handle it anymore. Moses, you go up and talk to God and tell us what God said. So that's where we are. Moses is, is speaking to the Lord. And the Lord is revealing His judicial law. And He's just laying out for us the, the, the concept of restitution, that, that what should be paid if something's been stolen or if something or someone has done wrong. And as we look at it in, in this judicial law that God's given, we're going to see God's desire and His will in a lot of instances as we take a look at it. For example, we, we ended up last week talking about... a. A man who, who lie with a woman, who, who was able to, to get a woman to sleep with him. The Bible said he was responsible for her just like she was his wife. She would pay the, he would pay the price or the dowry for her and he was responsible to her forever. So that gives us God's idea, God's concept behind uh, sex and what sex is all about. And, and the importance in regard to that and our responsibility. Now, today, we, we, people don't really think nothing of it. And we in the church do, but, but others, they just, you know, kind of take it, take it for granted. Flippantly, they'll go around with multiple partners. But God's word said, whoever you slept with, you were responsible for. So it, it should alter their thinking. The thinking of the, the children of Israel in regard to the Canaanites. Now listen... When we consider this, don't think that it was somehow uh, uh, different back then. The Canaanite structure, the Canaanite countries where the children of Israel were going were very much like we see in our world today. They were very much like that. It wasn't like it somehow was out of, out of style then. They were just as promiscuous in the Canaanite religions and in the Canaanite society as we see in the world today. So the Lord was laying out for his people something that was vastly different to the people around them, to the people everywhere else. Remember, God's the one here, way back in Exodus, second book of the Bible, who puts worth, the first time, puts worth on, on women. Back in that society, they didn't have that value. It was, they looked more upon as property. But God's saying, no, she has value. She matters to me. And you're going to take care of her. And so this is the concept. And as we go through the scripture, hopefully we're going to see that more and more. And as we look at verse 18, we're going to see 
right here, uh, three examples of corporal crimes uh, where you're going to see the life penalty given. First off, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Sorceress. Now, when we, when we look at that word sorcery or sorceress, we come to the word pharmakia, and it's important for us to recognize that in the practice of the occult, it was not just practicing the occult. It was all wrapped around drug use and drug abuse. And so what this sorceress or sorcerer would be is a person that would promote both drug use and the cult and occultic practices or occultic worship. And so the Lord's saying, hey, if you let that happen around you, if you leave that in your area, it's going to corrupt your families, it's going to corrupt you, so suffer not a, a witch or a sorceress to live. But we need to understand that's what was tied to it. Now, in the name of that verse, in the, in the Middle Ages and early periods of history in this country, that was abused by the church. And the church decided, you know, we want this property. All they had to do was accuse someone of what? Witchcraft. As soon as they accuse them of witchcraft, they burn them at the stake, take their land. All their lands were forfeit. Anything in the scripture, folks, if we take it, pull it out of context and try to use it with our own selfish purposes can be used to distort what God's initial intention was. God's initial intention was to, to allow that his family would be safe. And when it says you will not suffer a, a witch to live, you will not allow a sorceress to live in your community. It's not going to be okay. They'll be out. And so the Lord wanted them to have that concept, that, that kind of a system put together so that their children and their children's children will be safe. Remember where they're going. The land of Canaan. And it's full of these kind of practices. God doesn't want them to be involved in those things. And verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. The Bible laying out for bestiality, not to be tolerated. It's not to be tolerated. You know, it's, it's amazing in our country, the, the, the freakishly weird perversion that goes on in, in our country. It's, it's, uh, now, uh, truly, he, mankind is the same wherever you go. But somehow we think we're somehow removed from all that stuff. The reality is we're not. We're not that removed from it. It's interesting because uh, you can find sources online for... For any amount of perversion that you could possibly imagine. Men who love boys. Uh, people that are into bestiality. It's all there. It's all going on. It's all happening. And in each one of those things, you know, right now we have people who will say, you know, that, that I, don't, I don't choose this sin. I was born this way. I didn't have to choose anything. It's just how I am. Well, okay, I'm going to give you that argument. Just because that's how you are doesn't mean that's what you should be. For example, I was born a thief and a robber. But I'm sure it's not okay if I just stay a thief and a robber. I'm expected to exercise self-control. I'm expected to rise above that issue in my life. Same way here. God's word laying out for us. Hey, yeah, we're all born sinners. We're all born sinners, but that doesn't mean that's what we're supposed to wallow in. We're supposed to rise above. We want to move beyond. So we look at verse 20. He who sacrifices to any God except the Lord only, 
He shall be utterly destroyed. God wants us to understand one God. Now, when they go into the land of Canaan, there's hundreds, thousands of gods, opportunities for them to be tainted. And folks, what is going to happen in that holy city, if you were to travel to Jerusalem today, you could go and stand and overlook a valley called the Valley of Gehenna. And the Valley of Gehenna is factually where the children of Israel sacrificed their children to the god Molech. God would say, you know, this never even entered into my mind that you would sacrifice children to a god. In fact, Gehenna became known as a site of refuse where the worm never dies and the fires never quench. Jesus used that valley as an example of what hell is all about. But you see, the children of Israel, because they went into Canaan thinking, well, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, is it really that big a deal that they're saying God, we're saying God? You know, it's all the same word, so isn't it all the same being? Well, no, it's vastly different. It's vastly different. There's a a novel that was written, it takes you back to the time, and in Canaan, and it talks about a husband and, and a wife, and, and they desired so much to, to excel financially this year, so the husband went to his wife and said, listen, hon, every year they, they draw in the lottery, and they draw for all the new babies that have been born. What family will sacrifice their child so that we can be financially uh, above and beyond, so that God will, will bless our crops. And, and the woman, she's, she's saying, I don't, I don't want to give up my baby. I don't want to, to see that happen. And sure enough, on the day when it came for them to draw the lottery, it fell on them. And her husband came to her and said, listen, I don't want you to cry and I don't want you to throw a fit when they take our child. It's an honor to be picked as the family that would sacrifice their baby so that everyone else in the, in the city would be able to experience the, the, the financial gain from, from the God that they serve. And so the time came, the priest came for the baby, the, the woman, she couldn't do it, she, she began to cry, she tried to hold on to her baby and Members of the family and of that village pulled her away as they took her baby from her arms. They walked over to a bronze statue that was sitting in a fire with arms outstretched and they laid her baby in the fire alive to be burned to their God as a sacrifice that they would gain financially. And the woman went to her house and she cried and she wept. Well, months passed and harvest time was coming and in the harvest time, there was a, 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 a temple there on, the, on, the, uh, uh, on an outcropping in the middle of Canaan where the, every once, once in a year, the, the priestesses of the temple would choose one man to honor. And that one man would get to go up into the temple and sleep with all the temple priestesses. And sure enough, her husband was chosen. And on that day, he left the house and said goodbye to his wife. And she watched as he walked up the hill with the temple priestesses. And she said in her heart, in her mind, in this book, if my husband worshipped a different God, he would be a different person. Does it matter what God you serve? Sure it does. It matters significantly 
Oh, you, we may use, in here in America, we use the word God for, for everything. And somehow we think that that's God's name. That's not God's name. God, God tr- loosely translated is the word El. It's not even the word Elohim. It's, it's this translation of, of you know, that the, the all-powerful being in the heavens. But if we, like them, would say, what's the big deal? I mean, it's, it's all the same, isn't it? The children of Israel fell into that sin. The same people who walked and looked into the heavens and saw the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, and the pillar of fire began to worship gods that could be made out of stone, wood, gold, and silver, and to bow down and pray to those. Why? God, seeing that in his foreknowledge, said, No one sacrificed to any other god. No other God, only me. God is a jealous God. Jealous why? Not jealous in the, in the sense that we experience jealous. He's jealous for us. He, he wants to, to envelop us, to keep us safe, to hold us tight. And every one of us here tonight, and one time or another, is going to experience this same understanding with our own children. Because at some point, they reach the age where they get to make their decision, Right? Where they get to go and do what they're going to go and do. And we as parents hope that we've guided and directed and laid out what God's word teaches for them. But ultimately they're going to choose and we're going to understand that same pain that God has when they fail. But we're going to understand that same triumphant glory that God has when they succeed. It gives us a little sense of of what it is for him, and hopefully an understanding of why why is God talking about all this? Because that's what they're going to do. And before we remove ourselves very far from them, as a nation, we slaughter more babies than Israel ever thought of. More and and more coming. It's it's uh, we we had an opportunity to go to the pregnancy crisis dinner. My wife and I, and one of the things they talked about on the chart, they were, they were charting the level of abortions and how low they got. And I think the lowest point they had in, in Twin Falls County was 13, that there were 13 in one year. That's pretty low. But Planned Parenthood came and it's skyrocketed since and it's nearly as high as it ever was. And we think, well, we're not as barbarous. I mean, we don't, we don't lay the child on a, on a god with his arms outstretched and burn him in the fire. No, we, we inject this acid that melts him on the inside of the mother's womb, turns that into a fire. It's not any different. And we're going to see when God talks about it in here. But, you know, what is the number one reason? The number one reason that, that uh, proponents for abortion talk about is well if a woman was was raped and became pregnant you know that accounts for less than one percent of all abortions less than one percent it's their their mantra but it's less than one percent number one reason that that a baby is aborted financial stress not ready financially how's that different from the man sacrificing his child for good crops and here in our country, we see what happens. We're losing touch with what God's word lays out, the sanctity of life, Amen. that life matters. And so the Lord 
brings this back. Hey, don't worship any other God. Don't take God and make him in your own image. Don't change what God's word says. Look at it, receive it, and allow it to guide and move your life and, and direct you. Well, look what he says in verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them, if you afflict them in any way and they cry out at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. Here God is saying, I am the protector of the weak. But you notice what he says, if they cry out at all to me. He's saying, listen, Israel, you guys were slaves once. So you should understand that you should not mistreat your slaves. Now, the Lord doesn't say slavery is right. He knows slavery is what's being practiced. Last time we talked about God's progressive revelation, the same way God works in our life. He doesn't just flip me and expect me to be Uh, Like a believer that's been following the Lord for 30 years, he takes me there one step at a time, little by little. God progressively reveals his will. What did he tell us? The very first thing he said in his judicial law, he lays out the treatment of slaves. If you knock out a tooth, if you misuse them, they're free. That was God's plan. So God says, listen, the stranger, the alien, the one who comes to to your, your place or your country and is of me. Don't you mistreat them. Don't you mistreat them. I want you to be as hospitable to them as you want others to have been to you. I want you to recognize that you were once strangers in a strange land. And I watched after you. And if you abuse the widow or the fatherless... I will be their champion. And God's still their champion today. Now, a lot of people think, well, where is he? There's a lot of widows and a lot of things that happen to kids. Folks, all I can tell you is this. In God's word, I know that there is a day for the restoration of all things. Everything that went sideways or got wrong, God is going to make right. It's going to be right. And it will be just God knows what he's doing. We need to, to allow him to do that perfect work and to trust him. He goes on in verse 25. Now, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Now, the word there in Hebrew is a word nishek. Nishek is a word for interest that speaks of compound interest. In the book of Leviticus, you will see that there are areas, you know, there are areas in God's word that allows the poor to be charged interest, but it wasn't to be compound. It wasn't to be that type of interest that's going to wreck them and they end up owing forever and never being able to get out. God says, "Listen, I don't want you to lend money that way. I want you to I want you to give them an ability to to pay their bills and to pay you back." If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. That means if if your neighbor comes to you and he says, hey, okay, look, I'm going to give you my coat. Here's my coat, and and I promise I'm going to pay you back. The Lord says, you make sure he has his coat before the sun goes down. 
I don't care if you got your money yet. You make sure he has his coat. That's the only coat he's got. And I want him to be able to be warm. He says, uh, for it is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. And what will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. God promises to hear the prayers of the poor. God promises to, to again, be an adversary for them. But what we need to recognize and realize is it's not some crime to be poor. It's not as though God owes you something if you are. If you're poor, it's okay. Enjoy being poor. There's a lot of poor folk. Put you in good company, right? But it is convenient. <laughs> but what we it can be inconvenient. So what we want to realize is we look at what God's word lays out for us and what God's word is calling us to. Hey, God's going to hear the voice of the poor, but folks, I have learned in my time when I am in need, I am on my knees more. When I am full and everything's good, I, I tend to forget about the Lord. That's what God said about his people. Look at the book of Judges. The lowest time in the nation of Israel's history. What was it all about? Well, they would be slaves or in bondage. Someone was abusing them. They'd cry out to God. God would send a deliverer. A deliverer would come and set his people free. Set them back up so that they had everything that they needed. They would enter into a time of prosperity where they would forget about the Lord. When they forgot about the Lord, they would find themselves in bondage. In that bondage, they would cry out to the Lord and he would again send a deliverer. It's this endless cycle. And what it teaches us is what the heart of man is like. And when I have plenty, this is what I've learned when we were at, uh, at, at JS, when we would take a look at the ties in the church, in a time of economic prosperity, ties always went down. And in a time of economic hardship, ties always went up. Because when people were hurting, that's when they started thinking about the promises that God gives. When people were doing well, they were buying extra boats and RVs and, and it didn't seem like they could stretch the dollar far enough. It's just the way it is. It's the way our heart is. And so God is laying this out that we would realize, hey, it's, it's not a sin. It's not a problem. It's not a curse. I love that prayer that the scripture lays out for us. Lord, give me my daily bread. Not too little that I would steal. Not too much that I would forget about you. Just give me what I need. Amen. Isn't that a good place to be? And that's where God wants us to walk. He doesn't want us to take advantage of the poor. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not revile God. You ever found yourself angry at the Lord? Well, being angry at God is okay to a point. But the Bible says don't revile God. God's not a person. He, he knows your heart. Maybe he knows you're frustrated and upset. But he's still God. Don't revile God, and, and listen, you don't forget the other part. You're not going to like it. Or curse a ruler of your people. Or curse a ruler of your people. Hmm. Now that is a hard one to live in, isn't it? Curse a ruler of the people. What if a ruler's a knucklehead? Shouldn't I get to curse him? Look, the Lord, who is it that raises up kings and establishes nations? 
It's the Lord. It's the Lord. He wants us to lean on Him and trust in Him. Folks, here's what happens. If we get too caught up in, in spewing all this bitterness, either toward God or toward a ruler, that's giving in our lives a place for a root of bitterness to grow. And if we allow that root of bitterness to grow, it will taint us. Now, maybe you've all known people that have been, who get so frustrated about the political system that, man, it just, it just, just jacks up their noodle. They're just messed up. Their head's all sideways. They don't know what's going on. They can't think about anything else. I had a, I had a, uh, I don't know what you call him. My cousin's husband. What do you call that? My cousin's husband. There's not like a name for it. And my husband. So anyway, my cousin's husband was a, is a, is, was a preacher in, in California. And that dude was so wrapped up in politics. I swear to you. Now he's a preacher. I could not sit in a room and talk to him about the Bible without politics coming in. It was so consuming. And I would tell him, man, I, you know what? I'm not going to, I can't worry about all that stuff. I got to do what God's calling me to do. I sit here and argue with that. All I'm going to do is raise my blood pressure, pop an artery, and I'll go to heaven sooner. Now, maybe that's what he wants. But God says, don't revile against the Lord or against your ruler. Don't revile against them. He goes on to say, nor shall you delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You hear what he's saying? Do not delay to offer to me your first fruits. Now that one took me and Kathy a while to learn. But God wants us still to give to him first. First fruits. It's his. It's not mine. It's his. It is his. It will always be his. In the book of Malachi, God says, will a man rob God? Lord, how do we rob you? The Lord says in your tithes and offerings that man doesn't give God from his first fruits. He says, don't delay. He's telling his people. Why? Is it because God's broke? No. Folks, God's able to do above and beyond what we can think or imagine. What's God's purpose? Because he said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And if your, if your treasure is upon you and your, and your barns and your fullness and your checking account, then that has become your God. God says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. It's not about God wanting it. It's about God wanting us to be in a right place with him. And it took a long time for, for me and Kathy to, to get to that point. I, I've heard the story, you know, countless times with other people that God brought us to the point where we didn't have much. So when you don't have much, it was not that big a deal to understand what it was that God was calling us to. We, we felt very strongly that the Lord was calling us to tithe. And so from that day forward, that's what we've done. And that's what we'll always do. We'll give the Lord first. And that became a, a part of our, of our budget. People look at our budget and they look at that and say, well, I'll just cut this out. No, that goes first. I can cut out cable. Or I can cut out the internet. Or I can cut out something else. Monsters. Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> and if I do that, I'll be okay. But I'm not going to cut out the Lord. I'm not, Kathy's going to be 
ordering this tape so that she can play that over and over again. Okay, so we keep going. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, but on the eighth day you shall give it to me. And then look what God says in this. And you will be holy men to me. You're going to be holy men to me. Look at, listen to what God said. First, the first point in this was that you don't not revile God or, or your rulers. That you give of your first fruits. And, and likewise, that you would also do with your oxen and your sheep. That you would give of your first fruits to the Lord. And you will be holy men, set apart. You will not eat meat torn by beasts in the field, but you'll throw it to the dogs. You're not going to be like the beasts of the field. You're set apart. You're holy. Don't you see that's what's so sideways in our country today? I mean, kids go to school and think, hey, I'm no different than a beast. And the rule, the the greatest rule is him who has the power makes the rules. The strong will survive. Isn't Isn't that what's taught? And when we take away from our kids the fact that they're created in the image of God and that God has a perfect plan for their life and a design for how they are to live and we tell them you were just a bunch of ooze that sprouted feet one day, started walking around and here you are. Here you are. Used to be ooze and now you're ewes. (laughs) And so they, here they are. They're in this place. and, And so, and we wonder why they act like animals. Well, yeah, because that's what we tell them they are. That's what we tell them they are. We wonder why there's all this bullying and all this stuff. But what, did, what happened? What, what created that emphasis, at least in, in our country? Well, folks, it's easy. They took out the Bible. They stopped considering the Bible to, have to, to be the end-all, beat-all. At one time, every school was established on the Word of God. Every school, not just some. What do you think they taught in reading back in those days? The Word of God. The Ten Commandments could be put up in a, in a classroom, couldn't it? Now they can't. What's wrong with the Ten Commandments? Is, is, is it now it's okay thou shalt murder? Thou shalt steal? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the issue? Well, folks, Jesus laid out for us that the day would come when they would call evil good and good evil. And that begins... The, the scripture Ezekiel said, if you sow to the wind, what? You will reap the whirlwind. And that's what we see taking place. God says, if you want to be holy, listen to what he's... He, hey, you're not beasts. You're set apart. And you are to exercise self-control. We tell the world today, well, just do it. If it feels good, do it. I mean, how long did they preach that message? So when did we decide that was a good idea? But you see, God's word all along has been saying, no, no. You exercise self-control. Understand what the word of God is calling you to and walk the way God is calling you to walk. Chapter 23, you shall not circulate a false report. Where there is wood and a spark, there will be fire. If you take away one or the other, the fire goes out. The Proverbs teaches us that when it talks about Tail bearing, bearing a false report, gossip, talking about somebody out of school, talking about things that you ought not to talk about. He says, you will not circulate a false report. There is one who has the flame, the fire, 
But there's another one who's the wood. If I listen to it, I am guilty. If I don't stop it, then it spreads with me. And it has my assent because I received it. He says, hey, do not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Hey, don't, don't be an unrighteous witness. You know, in our courts today, they have something called expert testimony. You know, the, does that make any sense? Expert testimony? Because you know how they get expert testimony. They pay them money and they say what you want them to say. See, in, in the days when Jesus was on trial, they called that a false witness. Someone who got paid to say something. Here we see this. Hey, don't raise your hand with that. Don't assent to it. Don't just because everybody else is doing it. You're set apart. You're different. Don't be afraid to stand up, be numbered with God's people as opposed to doing what's easy. Hey, any dead fish can go downstream. Takes a live fish to swim up. And so God's calling them to be alive. You will not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Listen, he's saying resist that mob rules mentality. I mean, uh, wasn't that evident at Christ's trial? From, you know, just a, a few days earlier, four days, on the 10th of Nisan, when he entered into Jerusalem, they were all saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, proclaiming him as Messiah, shouting out to them, Hosanna, save now. Four days later, those same cries turned to crucify him. Crucify him. Here God says, hey, don't follow a crowd. Don't just follow the crowd. You're different. You're different, and you're to, to be different. And do not pervert justice. In verse 3, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. We could establish that in our country. We'd be a lot better off. Because we say that a, a person is, is a product of his environment. And because he's a product of his environment, he should receive leniency if his environment has led him to a life of crime. God's word says that's hogwash. That isn't true. You want to know the perfect example of how that isn't true? Study the millennial reign of Christ. Christ is going to reign for a thousand years of perfect peace. Book of Revelation lays it out for us. In that thousand years of perfect peace, the Bible says, if someone was to die at a hundred years old, you would say a baby died. The Bible seems to indicate that life is going to be extended, that creation is going to be touched by God and go back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. It says that the lion will eat straw like an ox, that the wolf will lie down next to the lamb. The Bible also tells us that a child will play at a cobra's den. And in this all, in all the animal kingdom, a child will lead them. No longer have to be afraid of what is out and what can happen that's the millennial reign jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron he's going to firmly establish his law and it's going to be perfect perfect peace a thousand years satan is loosed for one season and the bible says the army that turns against the lord cannot be numbered it is an innumerable host 
likened unto the sand of the seashore that will rise up against Jesus Christ at the end of the kingdom. What does that prove? That man is not a product of his environment. He is a product of sin. And man, left to his own, some men will choose to receive the free gift of God and others, no matter what you do, are bent on evil no matter what. That's their, that's their heart. That's their attitude. The Lord says here, don't give a poor man special privileges. Justice is supposed to be blind, isn't it? Isn't the statue of justice, isn't she blind? She has a sword in one hand, a scale in the other hand. She's got a, 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 a scarf across her eyes. So she can't see. Why? Because it shouldn't matter. If you've done wrong, you've done wrong. If you've done right, you've done right. Justice should be blind, and that's what God's saying. No partiality to the poor. If you meet your enemy's ox, or if his donkey is going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you will refrain, uh, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. What's he saying? Hey, if your enemy, the guy who hates you, if you have an opportunity to do something good or right for him, you should do it. If you see his ox wandering down the road and you think, wow, that's so-and-so's ox. Well, serves him right. You're supposed to go get it and take it back to him. You're supposed to help him if he's under a load and, he, and, he's, and he's stuck and his, his, his animals are worn out. He can't move forward. He says, you go and help. Go and help. Why? Because you're opening a door for restitution and redemption. You're opening an opportunity for an enemy to be made a friend. And that's how God wants our heart to be. Because that is not what God does for us. We who were at enmity with God, He has now brought together in one in Christ Jesus. He has restored, redeemed those who were at war with Him. And He requires... The same of us. He requires that of his nation. It goes on. You shall not pervert the judgment of the poor in his dispute. Now what's that mean? Well, you're not supposed to be lenient or be more strict. You're supposed to be the same. You shouldn't look at him and say, well, he's poor, of course, this is how he is, this is whatever. No, the Lord says you're supposed to be blind. Everybody's the same. Poor, rich. One guy shouldn't get more justice than another. That's not how it works here, right? If you have more money, you usually can get more justice or more mercy. If you can afford better lawyers, you can get off on just about anything you want. But God says not how it's supposed to be. If, if, it's, if it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It shouldn't be different. It shouldn't change. Well, he goes on now in verse 7. Keep yourself far from a false matter keep yourself far from a false matter hey right back to gossip again keep yourself far from it you know you do your friend a service if you tell him you know i can't listen to that to me that's gossip why don't we pray for him you know keep yourself far from it and then what's it say do not kill the innocent and the righteous for i will not justify the wicked well, that's one you could 
put up on a billboard in this nation. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. Verse 8. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the word of the righteous. What's that mean? If you receive gifts, you tend to be more lenient. How's justice supposed to be? Blind. Doesn't matter what they've given, what they've done, any of that stuff. So don't take those gifts. Don't take those bribes. Keep yourself in a place where you can judge righteously. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember where you came from. Folks, the most dangerous place for a believer to get is at a point where they forget the fact that they are sinners saved by grace. And we start to think that we're somehow justified by our works or our own self-righteousness. And we begin to judge ourselves based on one another. Well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm better than him. I'm better than her. That's self-righteousness. We got to remember where we came from. Sinners saved by grace. There but by the grace of God go I. When we restore a brother, we're supposed to consider ourselves and realize I could fall just like him. Just like he or she. And so I want to have an attitude of gentleness and meekness to lift them up. Not an attitude forgetting where I came from. That's what he says about the children of Israel. Don't forget where you came from. For 400 years you were slaves. Don't mistreat like you were mistreated. And so the Lord lays this out for them. Six years you will sow your land and gather its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. The sabbatical year. They were to work the land six years. The seventh year, just leave it alone. Whatever grew, grew. In that field, the poor could go and gather whatever grew. The poor were not receiving it. Someone didn't deliver it to them. They went and got it. They went and worked. Or they had someone from their family go and work the field and provide that food or sustenance for them. But the Lord said, you're going to work six. Now, in the sixth year, God made the same promise. He told them with manna. Remember, on the sixth day, he gave them twice as much, right? So what happened for the children of Israel? Well, probably the same thing happened to us. Well, we had a banner crop double that year. Wow. So, hey, next year I can really get ahead if I go ahead and plant the seventh year. For 490 straight years, the children of Israel never once obeyed. And so God sent the children of Israel into captivity in Babylon And Daniel the prophet was the one who recognized, hey, we're here for 70 years. One year for each of the years we were supposed to let the land lie fallow in the 490 years of our history up until that point. It should remind you of a story. Remember when Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often should we forgive our neighbor his sins? As many as seven times? What did God say? As many as 70 times 7, which is what? 490. Hmm. Just happen to be that way? Is it just happen to be? I don't think things just happen in the Bible. What's Jesus laying out? Hey, God forgave the children of Israel for 490 years. So as soon as you forgive someone for 490 years, you can complain about you've had to forgive too much. 
<laughs> on the 491st year, you're good to go. But we're not going to get there, are we? So this is what he's calling. This is what he did. Now, at the end of that 490 years, he required what? The restitution of all things. Hey, you guys owe me 70 years. He took them out of the land, and the land got 70 years of rest. That's what God was calling them to. That's how God was calling them to walk. Look at verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. I don't want us to misunderstand that this was given as a sign or a covenant with the children of Israel. The Sabbath is all about the nation of Israel. But before the nation of Israel existed, God said, we need one day, six days of work, one day of rest. You need one in seven. Paul would go on to say, let no man judge you according to to feast days or Sabbaths. Some esteem one day above another, others esteem every day of the like. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. What's he saying? Listen, you need rest. A day in seven. But I don't care what day you take. A day in seven. And that God needed it. Six days he worked, and on the seventh day, what? He rested. So when we say, I don't need that, I can go seven forever, we're placing ourselves in a kind of awkward position in relationship to God, aren't we? And so, not that it's supposed to be this burden. It's supposed to be rest. The children of Israel turned it into a burden. They wrote three or four different commentaries all on how to keep the Sabbath, what constituted work, what's not work, what is work. The point was just rest, just rest. It's pretty easy. But they made it more difficult. Well, that's what he's laying out here. Six days you will work. The seventh day you will rest. Hold your finger there and go Matthew chapter 11. If you flip over to Matthew 11 with me, Jesus kind of uh, develops this idea a little bit. And I want us to recognize, I want us to recognize this and experience all that God has for us. In verse 28 of chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was constantly pointing toward the fact that, and we need to understand this, He is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews lays that out for us. Chapter 4, we're going to see the Scripture bear out that same account. Listen, That He is the Lord of the Sabbath. That in Him we find rest. In Christ we find rest. We're not going to find it any other place. Paul, building on that idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, says all these things that we're studying in Exodus are examples to us. That we might not fail to enter into the rest like they did. And that we would recognize where is our rest? Our rest is in Christ. He is our Sabbath. Look in chapter 12. The Pharisees come at Jesus complaining about his disciples working on the Sabbath day. How were they working? They took a head of wheat and threshed it in their hands. I don't know. I don't call that work. But the Pharisees did because they made the rules in those days. So Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, when, he, when there were those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which is not lawful for him to eat? 
nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? What does that mean? Well, the priests, when they're sacrificing, aren't they working? Sure they are. You want to get another example? Go to Jericho. How many days did they march around Jericho? Seven days. On the seventh day, how many times? Seven times more. That wasn't work. It wasn't a, a, a violation of the Sabbath. What was going on? What's happening? Well, listen, here's what Jesus is saying. All these things are a shadow. The, the Sabbath is a shadow. What's the reality? The reality is Christ. Yet I say to you in this place, there is one greater than the temple. He was speaking of himself. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It was never about sacrifice. God was looking, painting a picture in the sacrificial system that they would recognize that the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world would come. There would be one sacrifice for all. Everyone would receive forgiveness in that one sacrifice. All these others were shadows, pictures. You know, like when you go away, you ever take a picture of your spouse with you? What if when I went on one of my mission trips, I took a picture of Kathy, and I got this picture of Kathy, and I look at it when I talk to her on the phone, but when I got home, and I got off the plane, and there's the real Kathy, I didn't want to run over to her, I just keep talking to the picture. Well, that don't make no sense, does it? But you see, that's what people do when they get all caught up in this ritual that painted a picture of the reality. Jesus is a reality. They were caught up in all the ritual. Not God-given ritual even, man-made ritual. But they were all caught up in that ritual. So look what he says in verse 8 of chapter 12 of Matthew. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus Christ, he is our Sabbath rest. We'll find our rest in him. The scripture goes on now back in Exodus. And on all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Hey, how do you combat the false? Some people think the best way to combat the false is to study the false. Really focus on the false. Get a great understanding for what the false is, and then you'll understand what false is. But God says, study the true, and forget about the false, and then you'll know what the truth is. And that's what he's saying here. Hey, don't even say the names. Focus on the reality. When my wife worked at Bank of America, one of the things... That, that she was able to express that she had experience as well is the understanding of uh, finding counterfeit money. You didn't spend all your time studying the false, you studied the true, the real. Then you recognize what was not real. The same way, that's what he's saying here. Hey, study the real. Don't spend all your time studying all the cults and isms. Study the Word of God. You know what the Word of God says. When they speak, you'll know what's wrong. Put your effort in where the effort needs to be. That's what he's laying out for us. And then verse 14. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in a year. Now, folks, in Leviticus 23, he's going to break out exactly the seven feasts that Israel were to keep. But there were three feasts that were required. If you were a male 
and you were within, I, I forget the measurement, I want to say 15 miles, that might be wrong, but you were within the general area, you were required to go to Jerusalem to be there for the feast. And that's what he's laying out for you here. Three times a year you will come before me. First, you will keep the feast of unleavened bread. The feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. Listen, unleavened bread is a Passover. The Passover is the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. And then through the feast of unleavened bread, you also will have what's known as the feast of first fruits. It's all in, encompassed in the feast of unleavened bread. Well, listen, here's what he's saying. Let, I, three times you're going to come. One time you have to come is during the feast of unleavened bread. And then he says, no one will come before me empty. They were all required to bring an offering. There was something that they were required to give. They were all to be covered in the sacrifice. Why? Can anyone come before God outside of that system? Can anyone reach God around Jesus? No. We, Jesus said there's one way, right? Me. What took place at Passover? The sacrifice. You couldn't come before God. I'm poor. I can't afford a sacrifice. No. You could offer two turtle doves. That was a poor man's offering instead of a, of a lamb. But you won't come empty because there is no salvation in any other name than the name of Jesus Christ. There's no loophole. Every man, woman, and child needed to be covered, needed to be accountable. They all would come before the Lord with something. One lamb per ten people. That's how it worked. One lamb for ten. If you were a poor family, two turtle does would be able to be your offering. But everyone had to offer. Everyone had to come. And it's such a, it's an important picture that we realize. Hey, there's no salvation any other way. You've got to come to Jesus. There's no end around. There's no other way. There's no, I'm too poor or I don't understand or whatever. You've got to come to Jesus. And when we come before God, no man's going to stand before God on his own in his own righteousness and be able to survive. We must stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And everything's good. That's how we have to come before him. None shall appear before me empty. Then the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor which you have sown in the field, and the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors, from the field. These are the three. Passover the, or unleavened bread, the, the Shavuot or Pentecost, and Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. The three times when the children of Israel had to appear before the Lord. Now, in verse 17, again, three times in a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. Now you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread nor with the fat of my sacrifice, or nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain till morning. What's he saying? You're not going to have leavened bread. What's leaven? A picture of sin. Sin. There's not going to be sin, a picture of sin, where the blood is. Because the blood does what? Washes away all sin. So you will eat unleavened bread. Because leaven is a picture of sin. 
And so there won't be leavened bread, because the blood washes away all sin. Nor shall the fat remain until morning. Why? Because one sacrifice, one time, covered all. Totally consumed. You didn't save it for later. You didn't take a little here and a little there. It was one time, one picture, one salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what he's laying out. So the fat's not going to remain. There's not going to be stuff that's left over. It's all utilized, all, all apart, all gone. So he goes on and says, Now the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So first he says, Hey, bring the first fruits into the house of God. That's where first fruits belong. That's where the tithe is supposed to go. Malachi lays it out that the tithe is supposed to go to wherever you call home. Your home fellowship, that's where the tithe goes. It goes into the house of God. In Malachi, he builds on that concept that so that there would be food, so that they would be able to meet the needs and do the things that God's calling them to do. And then outside of that was Whatever offerings you wanted to give, it could go anywhere else. But God's saying, here, bring your first fruits into the house of God. To, to your house of God, your place. And that's where they would make that offering. And then, because of this phrase, you should not boil a goat in its mother's milk. We go to Israel today and have to suffer in kosherdom. It's horrible. You don't get any meat with any dairy. That includes butter. You get margarine. So for some people that'd be okay, but it's not okay with me. <laughs> no cheeseburgers. No milk with meat. Why? Because the Bible said there was a Canaanite fertility rite where they would take a goat and boil it in its mother's milk. It was a form of worship in Canaan. But they took this verse and said, so we can never have meat with milk because if you drink milk and you eat meat and the meat you ate was the calf and the milk came from the mom, it'll boil in your stomach and you broke God's law. That's where it all came from. That's, sometimes that's how crazy people can get in, in applying God's word. What was he talking about? was an Ishtar celebration. It's written about in the Ugartic text, 1350 B.C., and it spoke of this offering, this offering of a goat in its mother's milk that was a rite of fertility in Canaan, where they were going. God says, don't do that stuff. Don't do their rites. But from there, we get kosher-itis. You go to McDonald's in Israel, and there's no cheeseburgers nor milk. You have raw fish for breakfast. Yeehaw. <laughs> and then you have cooked fish for lunch. You have two different sets of plates. One where they serve dairy and one where they'll serve meat so that none of it touches. It's craziness. But anyway, we'll go on. Behold, he says in verse 20, I sent an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. This angel, most commentators agree that we're looking at the angel of the Lord or what is known as a pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus. Before he came, he is known as the angel of Yahweh, Yahweh's angel, capital A, capital L-O-R-D. 
It's, a, it's an appearance of Christ. You'll recognize him in the book of Joshua. Remember Joshua? He's going in to fight the battle of Jericho. Before he fights the battle of Jericho, he sees this guy arrayed in armor, carrying a sword. And Joshua goes up to him and says, Hey, are you for us or for our enemy? And the guy says, No. And Joshua's a little confused at his answer. He messed up the whole question. It's all messed up now. No. No, he says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. You're on my side. It's not whose side am I on. It's whose side are you on. (laughs) And then Joshua was told to remove his sandals, for he's on holy ground. Remember Moses at the burning bush? What did he have to do? Remove his sandals. He's on holy ground. And Joshua worshipped him. Why? Can an angel receive worship? No. Every time you see an angel receive worship in the book of Revelation, what's he say? Don't do that. Don't do that. Except for when that angel, the word angel, remember, means messenger. When the messenger of Yahweh or the word of God is being worshipped. God the word, the son, Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, his spoken or his manifested or his manifestation. No man has seen God at any time, right? So if someone saw God, who were they seeing? Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in John, he lays out for us that the only visible representation of God is Jesus Christ, the Son. Okay? So, the Word of God. And so that's what he's talking about here. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. My name is in him. So, this is talking about Jesus. Is God's name in Jesus? Yehoshua means Yahweh is salvation. God's name in the Son. It goes on. Now, but if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Folks, in the Canaanite ritual, they were actually would, would build phallic symbols out of the trees. They were called in the Bible groves. They would, when the Bible talks about they would go to worship in the groves, that's what it's talking about. They would carve phallic symbols in all the trees or of all the trees, and that is where they would worship. And so when the Bible says don't go to their sacred pillars, that's what he's talking about. Don't go to those places. Stay away from all that junk. Utterly destroy it. Wash it clean. Because if you allow any of that to survive, it will infect you. And indeed, that's what happened. It would infect them. He goes on and says in verse 25, So you shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. Now even as they walked the 40 years in the wilderness, they had bread, they had water. The Bible says their shoes didn't wear out. God took care of them. Even then, even though they messed up, God took care of him. He takes care of his people. We can trust him. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill 
The number of your days. What's he talking about? Folks, it's appointed unto man once to die. That means there is an appointed time, an appointment. But Jesus says, hey, if you follow me, if you fully dedicate yourself, consecrate yourself to me, I'll fulfill your days. You ever look back at your life and see a bunch of emptiness and time you regret? God says, follow me with your whole heart. I'll fulfill your days. Teach us the number of our days, Lord, that we might apply the heart of wisdom. Because we don't have as long as we think. Ever. No matter where we are. We don't have as long as we think. We want to live those days out for the Lord. Verse 27. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among the people to whom you come. And will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. He's saying, wherever you put the sole of your feet... I will give it to you. And I will send hornets before you that will drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. But I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Isn't that how we grow? Isn't that how we gain the, the ground in, in our walk, in our life with Jesus Christ, little by little. He doesn't do it all for us. He doesn't just wipe out everybody and so that the whole land is empty and desolate and they could just walk in. They had to step where they put their foot. He gave them. If they didn't put their foot there, he didn't give it to them. At their height of Israel's power, they possessed 30,000 square miles. The borders, according to the word of God, that God describes having given them was 300,000 square miles. They possess only one-tenth. Today, they have less than 9,000 square miles. God promised them in the land 300,000 square miles. So, but it wasn't, God wasn't going to empty the land. What did they have to do? They have to go. They have to step. God says, I will give you the words to say when you want to share your faith with someone else. But he's not going to give you the words before you actually step out and begin to open your mouth. If you just sit back, he's not giving it to you. Little by little, little by little, as you step, God's going to give. We want to be able to step. We want to be able to move forward. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea... To the great sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out from before you. Now you will make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. Don't be moving through the land so quick that you don't want to fight a battle, and you just decide to make peace with your enemy. Well, they did that. They made peace with their enemy. What happened? They were infected. What was the cause of that infection? Countless lives. Because they didn't fully obey what God was calling them to do. If you make peace with your enemy, if you make peace with evil, if you allow something to still be a part of your life, and, and you say, well, it's, it's just this little thing, it will infect you. It's going to mess you up. So just cut it out. Let it go. Don't let it be even named among you. Verse 33 And they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And that's what they did. Well, we won't read about it until we get to to Joshua. They're going to have all these great victories. God's going to give them wherever they step. But it's the same way in our lives. Folks, if we want to experience 
true rest in Christ, there's areas of our life that we haven't surrendered to him. There's little closets that we keep closed off to God. There's little niches within us that are set aside. Well, you know, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want, well, if you will step into it, he'll give you the victory. But as long as you sit back, little by little, he'll give you the land. He'll give you the victory. But we, just like them, have to be faithful to step, to move into it, to be obedient to what God's called us to, and we'll experience that same fullness. Hey, of all that God had for Israel, they only experienced one-tenth of all that God had for them. How much are you experiencing? Because you can experience it all. But you're going to find that experience the same way they did. In surrender. In walking where God's calling you. In fulfilling his plan in your life. Don't be satisfied. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Don't be satisfied with what they were satisfied with. A whole generation perished in the desert. Never even entering in to the promised land. Don't be satisfied out there. Desire all that God has for you. And we'll understand the lesson that he lays out among his people. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we just thank you for this time that we can gather. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to study your word. God, we thank you that your word is and will always be true. And Father, we just, uh, we just pray that you would continue to give us insight, Lord, as we look at this judicial system that you laid out for the children of Israel. May we see within it the wisdom, God, that, that you desire mercy, that you desire mercy over sacrifice, that you, that you value justice, and that your people would not pervert justice, that you desire that we would walk fully and completely with you, totally surrendered, that we would be holy, not like the beasts, but that we would be different. Father, may we, your people, desire to walk humbly before our God. And Lord, may we desire to fulfill exactly what you're calling us to, how you're directing us, Lord, how you're speaking to our heart, that we, little by little, would conquer all the land in our lives, God, that you're calling us to possess. That we would possess all that you have for us, not just a tenth, but God, that we would not be satisfied until we were able to, to just experience all that you have for each of us. Lord, we lay up this evening before you, Father, and we pray, God, that your spirit would bring to our remembrance all of these things, Father God, that are of you. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and magnified in our lives as we live them out before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.